This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. All right, welcome back to UC Santa Barbara's Distinguished Lecture Series. We have with us Steve Zom today, and this is our last uh, lecture for the um, fall 2014. I'm John Greathouse. So Steve was the president of Procore Technologies, and he's been the president since 2004. Procore is a cloud-based construction software provider. Now Steve's responsibilities are interesting, and we're going to talk a little bit about how he's divvying up um, what he focus, focuses on. He's primarily looking at revenue generation. That's a good thing for a president to focus on, as well as customer success. Prior to Procore, Steve was the co-founder of Digital Think, which was one of the first cloud-based software companies in the corporate learning industry. While at Digital Think, Steve was responsible for marketing and business development. Um, and in 2000, the company had its initial public offering, or its IPO. The company was later sold to Convergys for $120 million, so a nice um, exit for Steve and company. Steve received his undergraduate degree from the university, um, a little-known university called Stanford, and he earned his MBA from the Haas School at the Business School in Berkeley. As always, I like to bring people in here that are well-rounded, have balanced lives, don't overly focus on any one aspect. Um, Steve's a great family man. Um, he also gives back in, in, to the community in a number of ways, including teaching at uh, UC Santa Barbara. In fact, Steve was sitting in one of these seats in a lecture series a couple years ago, and he approached me. I didn't, we had never met. And he approached me and he said, John, I want to get involved in this program. This seems like an awesome program. How can I get involved? So immediately his company, Procore, became a sponsor. Um, and then soon thereafter, Steve gave his time um, to our new venture competition, which led to him becoming um, an instructor here at the university. So it was a great path, and he's given a lot of time and effort and energy to our students. Let's give him a warm welcome. Good evening. Um, yes, uh, my name is Steve Zum. I'm, I'm unemployable, um, which is why I'm, I'm an entrepreneur, I guess. So uh, John asked me to talk to you a little bit about my journey, how I get to this point, and um, it, he also calls this lecture War Stories 101, I think. <laughs> um, and so I'll talk a little bit about that, and maybe um, also a little bit about why I enjoy teaching at UCSB. Um, the topic that I teach on is kind of born of a personal experience, and uh, it, it's something that, uh, as uh, older people always like to tell younger people, I wish I had known at your age. But... Um, so um, I'm going to talk about pivots. Um, so what is a pivot? It's a substantive change to one or more of your uh, business model components. Um, Frank Robinson, who is uh, based here in Santa Barbara, who's really the father of market validation, is, uh, says it's change to the business model or the product. Um, Frank likes to say bad news is the source of pivots. Steve says um, good news is the source of, of pivots when people get really excited about their uh, uh, about your idea. Um, pivots can occur at any stage in a company, and it's not more of the same. It's not a special promotion. It's not a program. Um, so let me give you my background. Um, so uh, I went to Stanford, and back when I went to Stanford, you couldn't work in tech 
um, when you weren't an engineering major. And I know this sounds very strange to you guys, but you had to be like a, in order to do marketing at a tech company, you had to have uh, an electrical engineering degree, which makes no sense whatsoever. Um, but that's the way the, biz, the world ran back then. Um, and I couldn't uh, figure out, as a, as a history major, how to get into the world of technology. And when I was at Stanford, I, I thought I was very techie because I owned one of the first Macintosh computers on, on campus. Um, they were shaped a little differently. If you've seen the Computer History Museum, you know what I'm talking about. And um, I was the guy who worked in the computer lab, and I helped Milton Friedman recover a, a uh, diskette. A disk is something we used to use in a computer. And um, so Milton Friedman is a famous economist, and I, I like to say I was responsible for a percentage point increase in the GDP that year because um, I helped him get his data back, and so I thought it would be great to go into tech, but I couldn't get in, so I uh, went to San Francisco, and, and I um, partied for a couple, I mean, worked for a couple of years up there, um, and then I went to get my MBA at Cal, um, again, trying to get into technology, um, and I was working towards this entrepreneurial um, this entrepreneurial thing that I wanted to do, I had no idea what, what I wanted to do. So first question was, you know, how did you go from being a history major to uh, being in technology? The real question is, how did I go from a history major to like having uh, being employed? Um, <laughs> it, it was, it's just this kind of stumbling, fumbling along thing, and um, you end up kind of uh, somehow I, I got my way in, into business school, which was somewhat easier back then. An MBA, by the way, is, um, that's a degree uh, that they used to, well, I guess they still do have them, um, and they're used to teach you how to manage companies that don't exist anymore, um, for the most part, from my perspective. But anyway, it was a good thing back then. Um, and there's a guy named Scott McNeely who uh, emphasized the networking and social aspects of grad school. Scott McNeely founded a company called Sun Computer. Anybody remember Sun Computers? Have heard of Sun Computers? They were very hot back in the uh, 90s. And um, he said, look, you know, you, the people that you get to meet around you are going to be the people that, are, um, that you're going to go forward and, and do business with. Um, and I'd like to say the same thing to you guys. Um, you may be sitting next to your future CFO. That's the person who's really good at the accounting uh, problem sets. You may be sitting next to your director of marketing. That's the person who always seems to have yet another story to tell. Um, the people that you know now and that you network with now will be around you in some respect for the rest of your lives. So um, choose wisely. Um, after my MBA, uh, I really drew extensively upon that personal network to, to uh, remain employed. Uh, started a company called Profit, which was really just an MBA uh, project, gone rogue, I like to say. Um, I looked at uh, Profit's website the other day. I occasionally like to do this because I had absolutely nothing to do with Profit after the first couple of years, and they've got... Um, offices all over the, the uh, world. They're in Berlin and San Francisco and London and Geneva and Zurich. And it's a brand consulting company. But really what it started out as was three guys doing a business school project on brand consulting. And we were doing it for a, a new a little store called o Old Navy um, that was brand new. And then we did it for uh, Levi Strauss and so on and so forth. Uh, Levi Strauss was a really 
interesting consulting, brand consulting engagement for me because I discovered this thing called the World Wide Web. <laughs> um, and my conclusion in front of the senior management of Levi Strauss was that someday, and I know this is crazy, but someday on every billboard there would be a web address or a URL, and that was going to tell people where to go. This was all radical stuff. Um, and I didn't know what I was going to do with it, but I decided I wanted to do something more concerned with, um, with the Internet. And so I started a company at my kitchen table with uh, two other classmates from business school um, called Digital Think. Uh, it was cloud-based corporate training before cloud-based was really existing. Um, I had never taken a training class. I had never taken corporate training, I should say. Um, I didn't know anything about it. And, um, but we happened to be in the right place at the right time. And we did, as John said, we took that IPO in February 2000. We had grown it to about 400 employees, about $60 million in revenue, and then we sold it. This is what uh, Digital Think looked like when it... Um, got pretty big. Um, this is now the headquarters of a company called Atlassian, which is in San Francisco. You can still go see that today. Um, but when we found it, it was a big empty warehouse, and we kind of created this. This is at, um, in the South of Market District in uh, uh, San Francisco. So not really, you know, nothing really out of the ordinary, right? Go to school in the Bay Area and get your MBA and start a company, and it gets really big. And so I didn't really have to pivot, so what's the big deal? Um, the second act was that I moved to Santa Barbara. Um, I do that. I, I moved to Santa Barbara because I was told to by my wife. Um, she said, you know, you, uh, if you want to see the kids grow up, let's all move to Santa Barbara together. I thought that was a good idea. Um, it was very challenging at the time because I was leaving uh, what I considered to be the hub of everything that was exciting um, in industry, everything exciting in my industry, which was the Internet industry and coming down here to Santa Barbara. Um, and after about six months of sitting on the beach and going, I'm going to learn how to surf, and then being threatened by some guy at Rincon over a three-foot three wave, um, <laughs> I decided maybe I should go back into business and quit surfing. Um, and Santa Barbara was pretty neat. I met some other entrepreneurs. Um, networking was more socially driven, so it wasn't as much business driven because I didn't have a job. Um, and, but my experience helped narrow down the search. So it helped me kind of uh, meet guys who were also interested in software, in entrepreneurial ventures, um, rather than, for example, you know, people that were just in the legal community or people who were in the services industries. Um, the startup environment in Santa Barbara is pretty positive. Angel investors are here. They're willing to fund new ideas. Um, the mid-level talent is really a challenge. It remains so to this day. So getting someone to move from the Bay Area or from LA or from Kansas City or Denver, and if they have kids and they're married and their kids are in school, it's very, very difficult. Um, finding younger employees because of the great universities here, including UCSB, Westmont, even City College, um, it's relatively easy to find super, super sharp young talent. Um, so we started Procore in 2004. Uh, I met my uh, co-founder, Tui Courtmatch, um, again, through our personal network. Translated, that means our kids went to preschool together. Um, and we were doing cloud-based construction software. 
Um, the technology was the same as digital think. And remember I said I'd never taken a corporate training class? I didn't know anything about construction, so it was a perfect match, right? Um, I didn't know anything about learning, and it worked. I didn't know anything about uh, construction, so this should be simple. Um, and that's the mission of, of Procore. Uh, it provides construction professionals um, with a better way to, to manage projects, right? We're trying to take all that hassle out of project management and backing it up with great customer service. And so we started the company, and then we ended up here. And it was just that easy. Um, those are all the employees. Uh, our building, if you haven't been there, it's down in Carpinteria. And we're right on the bluffs overlooking uh, the same rink on surf break where I'd been threatened years earlier. Um, actually, it wasn't that easy. Um, it took seven years before we got traction. So what I'd like to talk to you guys tonight about is really this seven years. Um, seven years is, I think, well, think back to where you were seven years ago, right? Long time, right? Long time to be wandering in the wilderness. Um, the red line up there are expenses, and the blue line is revenue. And you can see that the revenue, you know, neither one of them really did much for a long time. It, it was enough to keep the doors open, but it wasn't enough to be exciting. It wasn't a growing business. It wasn't a scaling business. It wasn't anywhere near the success of my last uh, business. There was no hope that it was going to go public. Um, there was no hope that it was even really going to keep its uh, doors open. And then sometime in uh, 2010, uh, all of a sudden, things launched. So um, the story of why we launched I'll go into in a bit, but how could I have taken this phase right here and shortened it, right? Because I don't think any of you want to spend the next seven years working at a company that's going nowhere. Um, it, the worst thing I could wish upon any of you is to be working in a company that's growing 2 or 3% a year or shrinking 2% one year, growing 3% the next year, shrinking 4% the next year, growing 5% the next year. It's hell. You don't want to go there. Um, hopefully from this lecture and uh, other things you may learn at UC Santa Barbara, you will know enough when you're sitting in that interview to think beyond the salary that they're offering you and ask about growth prospects and ask about business models and things that I'll touch on later in this, in this lecture. Um, so before we pivoted, what was Procore? Uh, we raised about $5 million from angels uh, in 2006. They were all local investors here in Santa Barbara. There was great, great early stage advice. You know, you should go to this person here in town to build your website, and I think I know some people who can help you code. And, um, but there wasn't really any industry in input whatsoever upon the construction software industry. Um, we didn't get any traction from that. Uh, we spent really heavily on marketing. Um, we had what's called an ACV, or an annual contract value, average contract value of 3,500 bucks. Um, and we had 100% annual customer churn. Customer churn is uh, we would sell annual project licenses for construction projects, or we would sell annual software licenses. And um, when we got to the end of the annual period, nobody would renew. Or, and sometimes it was because they were going out of business, and sometimes it was because they didn't see the value in what we were doing. But that meant at the, every, at the end of every year, I was right back to where I had been at the beginning of the year prior. So you remember that flat line on the revenue? That's where a lot of that came from, was from 100% annual customer <laughs> churn. Um, and so we had raised that money in 2006, and then came 2008, uh, the financial crisis. Um, we laid off 15 of our 
21 employees, I think. Um, we were down to four paid employees, plus um, Tui and I were euphemistically volunteering. It means we, we weren't getting paid. This was very hard to explain to the same wife who had insisted that we move to Santa Barbara. Um, there was really no hope of follow-on investment. I mean, would you invest in this company? We just laid off um, you know, three-quarters of the staff. We're selling construction software, for God's sake, in, 19, in 2008. It's ridiculous, right? Um, there's really no ability to go out and raise venture funds or venture debt, and we had approximately $50,000 left in the bank. And I'm having to pay four guys. I'm not paying them very much, but I still have to pay them. So what happened after the pivot? Um, we pivoted, we changed the pricing, we changed the, uh, the target market from residential to commercial construction, um, and all of a sudden we turned into this company. So with 100% average annual revenue growth since 2010, that's continuing today, um, we were ranked by Inc. Magazine in the Inc. 5000. Um, we grew uh, to 100 employees on retained earnings. That means we did it all without taking in any more debt, without raising any more money. We went from that $50,000 in the bank all the way up to 100 employees based just on um, clever management, cash management. Um, the average annual contract value was increased from $3,500 per year to $20,000. Uh, and my churn went from 100%, in other words, 100% of people refused to renew, to 94% of the people renewed, so 6% annual churn. Um, and we completed a round of growth funding in June of this year. So we raised uh, about 16 million bucks from a venture firm called Bessemer, which is um, one of the best firms at what they do. We have, uh, it says 150 employees. I think we're touching on 175 right now. Six different locations around the country, mostly here in Carpinteria. Big chunk in uh, Wilmer, Minnesota. If you know where that is, raise your hand. Most people, yeah. If, it's the turkey capital of the, of the U.S. Um, the actual birds. I'm not talking about my staff. So um, the business metrics continue to show very, uh, a, you know, great momentum. And every single month uh, in Q3 as well as Q4, we've been recording record revenues. I mean, each month is, is a record. Um, so why did it take so long? Remember, I showed you long seven years in the wilderness. What, did I just suddenly get smart or something? Um, the model of the 1990s didn't work. The customers didn't buy what we were selling. Um, you know, we kept going to trade shows. And raise your hand if you've been to a trade show, if you know what a trade show is. Okay. And I had, before I got out of college, I'd never been to a trade show. I was astounded that such a thing even existed. It's like a convention for people trying to sell stuff, right? And we would go and we would spend $150,000 in three days just trying to make a, a big impression. That was the, the strategy of the 90s. Um, we really struggled to find our market. Um, the business was always stuck in first gear. So why not give up? Um, we didn't give up because I would go on sales calls and I would see these guys literally, I'd be in a conference room and there would be some crusty guy, you know, like 70 years old, and he didn't use computers, but he ran his general contracting business and he knew how to build stuff. But his son knew how to use computers. And his son would usually have been the one that set up the meetings. And the crusty guy would be sitting there, and he'd be watching a demo. And he didn't know how to work the computer or even how the 
image got from the computer up onto the screen in the conference room that his son made him build. And he's kind of sitting there looking at it, and he sees it, and he actually sits back, and he's really skeptical, and then you see the skepticism change to curiosity. And then always about 25 minutes into the meeting, he would stand up and get out of his chair and say, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. And this happened multiple times with the multiple, pretty much the same persona. And when you see that, when you see your customers come out of their chairs, when you see the whites of their eyes just go big because they realize that you're going to solve a pain for them, you can't give up on the business. So what's the corollary to that? The corollary is if you never see that, get out of the business, right? So remember the flip side. Look for the... the um, the value of the product market fit. Product market fit is a very handy phrase that everyone throws around, but what's great about it is you can see it, you can experience it, it's visceral, you feel it. Product market non-fit, however, likes to hide under a rock and you can convince yourself that non-fit, in other words, nobody cares, you can hide behind survey monkeys, you can hide behind email surveys or Google Docs or Google itself, and you can convince yourself that product market fit is where it's not because it won't rear its head. The lack of product market fit is non-obvious. So I hope you take that away from this small talk. Um, so it always seemed that the answer was if we could just get more customers, we could build a real business. And the conviction what kept me coming to work every day was experiencing the customer reaction when we did get in front of those customers. So we changed little by little and we started listening to the customer to learn how they buy, what is the buying experience of the, of the customer, what did they want. We changed our product, so we, as I said, went from residential market to commercial. Um, we used to build the kind of houses in Malibu um, I just saw one that was an early Procore project from 2004. Lady Gaga just bought it for $23 million. So do you want to read that headline? Lady Gaga bought in Malibu. I don't know if you followed that, but um, she did. And uh, that was an early project of ours. So they're big, massive houses, but they were still houses. And we switched to commercial um, projects like hotels and university buildings and solar plants and resorts and office buildings and um, things that are not private homes. Uh, we changed our contract terms from a monthly charge to an annual license and we changed our pricing. So we went kind of from a consumer grade pricing, that $3,500, to an enterprise pricing, $20,000, $25,000. Our most expensive um, contract right now is about a quarter million dollars a year and our least expensive is about $8,000. Um, so we increased the average contract value per client by about 10 times. So um, what's it called, a Veblen good, right? Does anyone, anyone in econ major knows what a Veblen good is? If I have my term right, I think I do. Anyone? Yeah? What's, do you remember what it is? It's a good that, for instance, like Rolls-Royce, if you, uh, you charge. Rolls-Royce, yep. those people, consumers, won't buy it anymore, so it needs to be Right, so essentially what he says, you, you raise the price and more people buy. I'm saying it goes for Rolls-Royce, it goes for um, you know, Rolex watches, Beats Heads, phone, Beats Heads phones, all right? Um, and I think what we found is people didn't trust us. When we were a, at a, uh, an enterprise-grade software at consumer prices, nobody trusted us. Totally non-intuitive. I wasn't listening to my customer. It took me seven years to figure that out. It was agony. 
um, but interesting. So you don't have to spend seven years doing this. Um, the alternate approach that, uh, that I teach here at, at UCSB is market validation. Um, the emphasis is on customer feedback instead of business plans. Business plan is a document on how to execute a business model. Uh, a business model is w- how do you make money, right? Um, Frank Robinson, I was talking about before, he, he's been market validating here in Santa Barbara since 1984, so this has some local connection to it that I find kind of interesting. The goal is to discover product market fit as quickly as possible. Um, you don't execute, you don't create a business plan with a financial forecast and uh, an organizational hierarchy and a um, list of of great things you're going to do until you have a business model, until you know exactly how you're going to make money. And to get a business model, you need to validate it um, in the marketplace first. And this is the popularity of the lean startup model. Um, You may have heard of a book called Lean Startup that was written by Eric Ries. Eric Ries was a student at Cal uh, at the Haas School of Steve Blanks. Um, Steve Blank uh, has written a book called uh, The Startup Owner's Manual. Um, and he also has a course on Udacity um, that is a video course that is free. If you want to um, go further, then I, you know, don't answer all your questions in, in this talk. Um, just go take that Udacity course. It will be the single best six hours of video. I mean, it's, it's better than Breaking Bad. I, I mean, it, it is that good. So um, spend the time on it. Uh, business model competitions have really replaced business plan contests. The new venture competition is a business model competition. It's not a business plan competition. Um, and investors are funding validated business models. They're no longer validating plans. There are a couple things that investors uh, will, not va- will not fund anymore. One is client-server-based software, and the other are business plans. Um, the common theme of all this is learn by doing. Um, you want to get out of the building, or this acronym is NIHITO, which means nothing important happens in the office. It really doesn't. Nothing important happens if you're trying to start a company. It doesn't happen in your office. It happens out where the customers are. Um, and Santa Barbara is really a leader in, in doing this. Um, so the crucial tool that I use in my class that I teach about is um, the business model canvas. And the goal is to um, design and invent business models in a systematic way. I'm trying to mash up in a sense, the scientific method with business model creation. Um, And you use the business model canvas as a framework, as a way to organize your thoughts around market validation. There are nine building blocks for it. There's the customer segment, who you're gonna sell to. There's the value prop, what problem you're gonna solve. There's the channel, how you're gonna get it to them. Customer relationships, how you're gonna market to them. Revenue streams, how are you going to make money? Is it going to be uh, a Netflix subscription model? Is it going to be an app store in-app model? Is it going to be a direct sale cash model? Do people rent your, your service or your software? Uh, is it a health club model where they pay you an ongoing membership fee? What's your revenue stream? What are your key resources? What do you need to, to make this business work? What are your key activities that you need to do? Um, key partners that you're going to need? Do you need resellers? Do you need manufacturing partners? Are you going to be sourcing things from overseas? Are those going to be your partners? Um, What's your cost structure going to consist of? 
And all those line up and they become the business model. The most important part is this part that says value proposition and customer segment. When you get the right value proposition and the right customer segment, that might be a demographic, it might be females ages 18 to 24, it might be uh, males ages 60 to 75, um, it might be everyone on earth, it might be uh, only people who drive Mercedes-Benzes. But you got to know your customer segment and what pain you're solving for them. Once you get that, you are 60% um, of the way to having a business. Um, so we lay out the business model canvas. It kind of ends up being this shape. Uh, if you see, there's, if you draw a line right through the middle of it, there's the right side of the canvas, the left side of the canvas. The right side of the canvas is pretty much um, what I concentrate on my, in on my course. And then what you do is you come along and you make guesses on all of these. If it was uh, a science class, I would call them hypotheses. Um, but we'll just call them what they are, which are guesses. So you guess about every one of these. And if you have a business idea today, and if you consider yourselves entrepreneurs, and I know that uh, all of you have teams in, is it 122? So if you're in 122 and you have teams, then you all have um, a business idea. And you throw your guesses up, just as we've done here with sticky notes against a business model canvas, and then you go out and you validate it. And you validate it by, by going and talking to people. So you go out and you do customer discovery by talking, by actually asking 10, in my course, it's 10 potential customers. So what we do in 149 is every week, you go out and you test those guesses with, by talking to 10 customers. That's why you need four people on a team, because there's too much work to talk to 10 people every single week to do it by yourself. So you go out, you do customer validation, and if the customer validation doesn't say, yes, we've proved this hypothesis, then you pivot. Pivoting is, is, I love this phrase, iteration without crisis. Why is there no crisis? There's no crisis because you're pivoting based on data. You're not based, basing this on your gut. You're not basing this on emotion. You're not basing this on late night arguments two in the morning with your co-founders. You're basing it on the data. The data is ugly in some cases. The data doesn't tell you what you want to hear in many, many cases, but it allows you to iterate. You've got to be fast because the sooner you pivot, the sooner you're going to find the business model that works. You test using a minimum viable product, which is the smallest feature set that gets you the most orders, right, or learning or feedback. Um, Later in the product life cycle, so once you do have a company, then pivots come from customer complaints or lost deals once you already have a, a viable product. But you want to make sure that you have the ability. Again, um, when I admit people to my class or teams to my class, I'm looking for a team. I'm looking for a business idea, the quality of which is not up to me because I'm not the one validating it but I'm looking for a team that has a business idea, and then I'm looking for a team that has the ability to create a minimum viable product. That might be a wireframe, it might be an app, it might be a physical product that you can do a mock-up of, it might be a video of what the experience would be like. It doesn't necessarily have to involve a comp size student coding for you. Um, so I like to talk about the example of a company that just um, raised money in San Francisco. And their business model is that they provide a service so that when you're in your car and you want to pick up food or goods that you've ordered from a store, you can pull up and someone will come out and hand you the package. It could be Chinese food. It could be um, something that you've ordered online. Um, their first major customer is Target. 
So that gives you an idea. Target Stores is willing to, to uh, you know, use this service. And uh, the business is called Curbside. And they just got funded for $13.5 million. When they were testing it, they didn't need an app. They didn't need a, really anything except when the person at the business that was helping them test it answered the phone. They said, would you like curbside delivery on that for $2 or $3 or $1 so you could test prices and so forth? And they said, text us when you're getting close and we'll bring it out to you. That's how they tested. That was their minimum viable product. Think about it. They didn't create anything. They just created a process to see if people were willing to pay so that they didn't have to look for a parking spot. And so someone is actually taking, I think it was Chinese takeout, from the restaurant across the sidewalk to the driver waiting in the car. That's all they were selling. And that was their MVP. Ultimately, that led to a business that got funded for $13 million, 13 and a half. Kind of interesting. Pivot cycle time matters. It matters because um, you don't want to be stuck like I was in the seven years. It took me seven years to figure out how to pivot. Um, I was too stuck in not listening to uh, my clients. I wasn't getting out of the building. Um, I did some visits to see people get excited on sales calls, but I didn't do enough visits with the people who didn't buy. Right? I didn't figure out who wasn't buying. I didn't go to people in the industry who hadn't called me. I just got stuck in going on sales calls and convincing myself that I had great product market fit, which is true, but there were a lot of things that I didn't have that, that I was missing. Um, the speed of the cycle minimizes your cash needs. Um, having a minimum feature set, it speeds up the cycle time. It allows you to get better reactions. Um, instantaneous customer feedback can drive your, your feature set development. Because think about it. If you're developing a product, you want to develop those elements of it that have the highest value because people are going to pay you more for those. So shouldn't you stack rank or prioritize what features you add based on what people are going to pay the most for? And how are you going to figure that out? On your gut? Or are you going to go ask people? So um, some tools to help compress pivot cycles. Um, there's wireframing, so there are tools like Balsamic or um, just screen grabs like Snagit or Sketch. Skitch, sorry. Um, we're starting to get real-time customer feedback uh, inside of web apps now. There's a great app called Intercom.io. It allows you to watch people use your app, use your website, and start chatting with them or uh, conduct a survey. User Voice and WebEngage are some other tools that are along the same lines. And then when you start to get to bigger apps, uh, for us at Procore, we use uh, uh, Tatango, but there's also Gainsight and Mixpanel, which um, allow you to kind of monitor exactly who's doing what inside of your app. So think about it this way. When you had Microsoft Word installed on your laptop, Microsoft doesn't know if you're using it. They don't know when you're using it. They don't know um, if you're even using it or are you using Google Docs now, right? They really have no clue until it comes time for a new release of Microsoft Word that then gets downloaded, right? Compare that to Google Docs. Google Docs knows exactly who's using it where, when, for how long, in what countries, who's creating bigger documents and smaller documents. Is it businesses or is it universities? They know everything. And I don't want to get all like, you know, NSA on you or anything, but... It's, it's not about the content of the usage. It's about the usage itself, the engagement. So they know if Google Docs rolls out 
a new um, tool for highlighting, they know if you use it. They know what percentage of you use it. They know if you tend to use Google Docs overall more if you have that tool or less if you, than, than when you had the tool, right? Now, Microsoft kind of came into this game, and they're doing Office 365, and I know, I know they have cloud-based tools now. But before that, Microsoft was essentially flying blind. There was no market validation whatsoever. But in the new, uh, the new era of SaaS software, companies do this. We study exactly what our users are doing. We study every single new feature. We study who um, sends us requests for customer support, who are heavy users of a feature and have asked for support, who are heavy users of a feature and have asked for support and have the title project manager and work for companies bigger than $50,000 a year and are based in the Northeast, right? Data is the new bacon, I'm telling you. It's, it's so exciting what we can do with it, and everyone gets... Um, in business, that's, you know, it's just like bringing bacon out for breakfast. Everyone wants more data and more analysis. Um, so what I learned from all this, um, a startup is not the same as a company. You've got to define the business model before you start executing. You've got to validate that business model with uh, customers, and that works only, not only for uh, new, new companies, but also new features. Um, pivot based upon the data and not upon the gut feel. Ha use an MVP. Um, and the technology and tools you use can compress those pivot cycles. But don't substitute technology for getting in front of the customer, getting out of the building, because nothing important happens in the office. That's it. Thanks. Do you know how to make this go? All right. Well, thanks, Steve. Thank you. That. So now, a few. Um, you're in the hot seat. A few questions. So we're okay. going to take some questions from students um, as well. My first question, though, is you said um, you're unemployable. Yes. So did you always know you're going to be an entrepreneur? So as a kid, were you one of those kids that was always selling stuff, or what was the what were the clues? Um, it's just really bad at taking direction, I guess. I I, I had. Um, always been excited by the stories of, of the entrepreneurs. And in the 80s, it was, um, there's a lot of talk about real estate entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. And that was a very easy place to see entrepreneurship um, because people would buy houses and redo them. It's all like, you know, um, Property Brothers Flipping. or something, that, like HGTV, yep. fix it and flip it. Yep. That was all the rage in the 1980s, too. Um, and then that was replaced by um, software entrepreneurs. And, uh, you know, it wasn't only Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. It was also Scott McNeely. Um, it was also guys like Hewlett and Packard that literally started out in a garage. Um, and so those stories were fascinating to me because it, um, I, uh, Steve Blank, I saw him speak the other day, and he said an entrepreneur, uh, an entrepreneur is, is like an artist, and it's how it's something that they kind of, used to express themselves, and it, I don't know if I consider myself an artist, but I definitely consider entrepreneurship my craft, and it's a way that, um, to me, it's very fulfilling, right. and I can't see um, going and just filling a space at a company, yep. and I don't know if that's been accretive over the years, or if, but I've always been fascinated by that kind of approach. Yeah, so. and I, I feel the same way, so I always 
think about entrepreneurship is it's like putting a puzzle together. Yep. But the difference is like when you buy a puzzle, there's a box with a picture on it. I think this puzzle, there is no box, there is no picture, and in fact, you have to kind of carve the pieces to make them fit. And so for the way my brain works, I kind of love that. I talk to other people and they think, that sounds horrible. Like, why would you yeah. want to do that? So it's constantly learning and, and that curiosity that drives you. What's, what's interesting to me now, um, and, and I've kind of been thinking about this lately, is uh, especially as um, so SaaS businesses, um, software as a service, uh, um, they're becoming, we now have the tools, like I was talking about, to tango and how I can tell what, what my customers are doing. Um, I have CRM system, uh, salesforce.com, to know what my salespeople are doing. Um, I can tell what my account managers are doing. It's becoming very metrics-driven. Right. Um, and so now I think essentially just as the technology that made these businesses possible, um, is, has, it's all open source, right? So we're a Ruby shop, and I have 40 developers right now at RubyConf in, in San Diego and, um, because they want to participate in the open source community of Ruby. And I think the same thing is happening with um, business process and entrepreneurship in general. And now I'm starting to see that um, the only com- sustainable competitive advantage that I have as a company um, really comes down to the people and the culture. Right. Um, it's, it's getting the right people and giving them the right environment to do their, their work. And as soon as, um, as soon as you compromise on the people, the, the company starts going downhill. And it's, um, it's just really fascinating to me. How I, I kind of almost see it as, it, look, I'm telling you how to, how, to, how to market validate a business model. It's kind of like open sourcing what took years to learn in the, yep. in the 80s or 90s. Right. And I think once you get a business model, everything you need is also open source or free. So um, Amazon Web Services, AWS, hard disk, hard disk space is free. Servers are free. Um, coding, while not free, is, is readily available, right? And it's almost as if everything has been open sourced except the human element of how do you put together the best people and how do you attract those people and keep them. So. Right. No, I agree. And, you know, I come from the SaaS world and I invest in that world. And, and every, and the, the thing that's the downside and the upside of SaaS is everything you do is out there for the public. There's no intellectual property to speak of. You just have to run harder and faster. So let's talk about culture. You have hired a bunch of my students. Yes. And the reason I'm happy to um, give you the blessing is because the culture is so positive for them. So what are some things that you overtly do for um, all of these young people that have high aspirations and high energy? How do, you, how do you tap into that while keeping them happy and challenged? Yeah, I think, um, well, we have three values. So our, our values are, are openness, ownership, and optimism. Um, so, you know, in terms of, of openness, we're very transparent. Um, we don't put a hierarchical structure in place. Of course, there's managers. I mean, somebody has to make decisions. Um, but it's not as if uh, people are told what to do without understanding why. Right. Um, I'm happy to show everything except salary information because that's confidential, but I'll show any employee, you know, I'll show you, you want to know the revenue, I'll show you the cost, I'll show you everything. Um, and if you want to come into my office and talk about, hey, have we thought about, you know, you're an engineer, a software engineer, and you want to talk about marketing, we'll talk about marketing. Um, I want people to understand the business. So I, as a culture, we want to be very open. Yep. We actually went into our building and blew out all the walls and put glass panels in all the doors because we want to communicate that openness. Um, the ownership is we want to make everyone feel like an owner. 
so that um, everyone should feel that they have a vested interest in, in the success of the business. Um, uh, so everyone at, at Procore, once they become a full-time employee, gets some amount of, of options. Um, and who knows what those options are going to be worth, but um, you know, we think they're, they're going to improve in value, but at least it gives you some stake. Sure. You know, it might not be enough to retire on, but hey, maybe it's enough to buy a car a few years down the road, that, you know, a really nice car. Um, hopefully a really nice car. Um, and then on the optimism, I think that you need to, to believe in the best in people. Um, there's a command and control structure you could put in place which says, okay, how do I protect against risk? And how do I absolutely make this, this entire venture risk-proof? I'm going to come up with rules for every single eventuality. Or there's a, a more of a, a respect culture and an optimistic viewpoint that says, look, everyone wants to do the best thing. Everyone wants to be their best. So let's build towards that. Let's build towards assuming that everyone is trying to do the right thing. Most often what keeps them from doing the right thing is not having enough information or the right information at the right time or they have the wrong information at the right time. And so a lot of it comes down to communication. Um, and those are the things that we really try and focus on. That and, and skill development. I think everyone, you know, everyone talks about how school is such a great time, and you ask adults that are in jobs and stuff, oh, college was the greatest time I... And part of it was the freedom, don't get me wrong, uh, but also part of that is that you guys constantly feel like you're accomplishing something, you're learning now, I hope, uh, right now. Uh, but you're learning overall, and we try and put that atmosphere into the, the company. Yep. So we bring in lectures. Um, we have a construction management professional come in because none of the employees know, almost none of them know anything about construction. So we have to teach a seminar called Construction 101. And we bring everyone in and we learn about construction. Um, it's the same thing. We bring in people from the Ruby, from the Rails community um, because people want to feel like they're improving. Nobody right. likes to just, I mean, you guys have moved so far. I don't, you know, if you're, if you're fourth years, you're thinking, God, I was such an idiot when I was a freshman, when I was a first year, right? If you're a freshman. Well, they were. Yeah. Well, no, but not these. <laughs> if there are any freshmen in here, you're not idiots. You're so much smarter than you were four years before, right? But you've, you've had this constant improvement at this incredible rate. I mean, while I was twiddling my thumbs trying to figure out product market fit seven years ago, you know, look how far you've come in seven years, right? And so... You graduate and you're supposed to stop, like slow that velocity. That just sucks. So you, you got to keep that velocity going forward. Yep. And if I don't give people the opportunity to learn at that velocity, they're just going to go find it someplace else. Yep. Um, so we try and bring that into the to the workplace as well. So we're going to go to the student question in a second. Um, and that's that's what I tell my students over and over again. That's one of the reasons why I'm very comfortable encouraging them is is there's a time to learn and there's a time to earn. Believe me, you're not going to get rich your first job out of the gate. I hate to break that to you. Um, but so what? You're not trying to get rich. You want to find an environment where people are open to teaching you. If you show the initiative, you go into somebody's office respectfully at an appropriate time, and you say, hey, I, I know this is outside the purview of what I'm supposed to be doing here, but I'm really curious. Um, why are we doing this? Or what, you know, what sparked that initiative? Or what's our biggest challenge to get this thing done? And just become inquisitive about the business. You're gonna, you'll take away so much more than a paycheck. And I know that that's uh, what Procore definitely encourages, that kind of behavior. All right, we'll take the first student question. 
thank you for speaking to us, Mr. Zom. Uh, my question is in today's business environment, how important is it for students like us to be proficient in coding, even in industries outside of software? Um, well, I can start by saying I'm not proficient in coding, but, it, it, you know, uh, look, to the extent that you enjoy it and to the extent that it comes naturally, I think it's a great way to spend your time. I don't think it's going to, um, you know, if you can't learn to code, learn the structure of coding. So learn what GitHub is, learn what, you know, what does it mean to release to production? What does a, a production environment in a software company look like if you want to work in a software company? Um, and then go sell. And don't, don't try and turn yourself into something you're not, in other words. But um, as an engineer at a software company, you should understand the business model, right? So I, I think you need to understand the full picture. And the more that you understand, the more value you're going to be to whoever you team up with, either to start a business or to work in a business. Um, I have you know, students or recent graduates who come to interview with us all the time. And those that um, set themselves apart are usually asking about things that are non-obvious. You know, um, who are your competitors? It's kind of obvious. Tell me about your business model. What's your product market fit? Um, tell me about, you know, tell me about your technology stack. And then I know that I can have that conversation with somebody. And it's going to be that much easier to ramp them when, once they're in the business. So to answer your question, I don't think it's vital that you know how to code as a non-coder. But you should understand what are the concerns of coders. Um, what would make you a better, uh, someone who could sell to somebody who does code? What would make you better at managing someone who codes? Um, the more you understand their world, the better it's going to be. And I think that world, you know, I think I agree with, um, you know, the guys who say that software is eating the world. I think everything's going to be software um, to some extent. And the more you understand about that world, the better kind of thing, so... I think it's. I think your kids are going to look back, and it's going to be like literacy. Yeah. Like you can't code. Oh my gosh! It's like you couldn't read. Like oh wow, that must have sucked for you. Oh. But you know, when I was in college, if you didn't learn Japanese, you were screwed, right? Like you had no future if you didn't learn Japanese. And then all of a sudden, and the the guys before me, they were specialists in um, Soviet American studies. Not a whole hell of a lot of use for that anymore, right? Um, it's it. So the world changes, and it changes in ways that all the pundits say, oh, this is the trend. You've got to know this. You've got to know that. Um, but I think this one has fairly long legs. <laughs> this, you know, I don't think you're going to do yourself a disservice by um, signing up for Team Treehouse and taking a basic HTML or, or Rails course. Yeah, I don't code, but I had to obviously work with a lot of coders, and just understanding their limitations and what they're dealing with is important. Yeah. So I'll go to you in a second. We'll get to the next student question. But first, Steve, I'm curious. So you did digital think. You yeah. did it really early. Um, what do you think universities can learn from from the approach you guys took? And what do you think, you're, you're a professor now, what do you think the landscape's going to look like 10, 15 years from now? I mean, we're sort of, this is kind of, this is kind of old school, right? Yeah. Um, what was it? Somebody was telling me that lectures only work for something like 10% of the population or something, which means 90% of you aren't even listening to me right now. Um, what? <laughs> but it's, it's uh, I think, what I hope it's going to look like is I hope it gets more experiential. Um, I think we're destroying, um, look, 
from my viewpoint, in, in my career, um, universities have served as brands and filters. And I think, uh, you know, so if I tell you I went to Stanford and I went to Cal, you automatically form an opinion like that. And I think that's going away. I hope it's going away. Um, because those universities are, are skewing heavily. So as a California resident, um, my daughter's junior in high school, her chance of getting into Cal with a, with a 4.0 and great activities and a great school is reduced by the politics of the UC system having to fund itself by out-of-state students. So I'm trying to get her to move to Utah, which is hard because she lives at home. Um, because I, I say, look, your chances of getting into Cal will be better if you're coming from Utah. And I wish they had a box on the form that you could check that say, I will pay out-of-state <laughs> tuition. Um, because I would. I, I, I would do it. But that's not fair to everyone else who can't check that box. So it's um, something's wrong. Something's really wrong with the system. And I, I hope that the one thing I keep coming back to, and I've been really pleased with my course, is um, students come to me and they're jazzed in TMP 149, in the TMP program as a whole, because it seems more real to them. And I think we can do that across the board with courses that are more experiential, um, that get you out of the classroom. And the only way that, um, that I've seen to make that a reality is, is I use Steve Blank's lectures as the lectures, and then use the class time as a time to report on what you've learned outside the classroom. I think that's cheating, dude. It's oh, it's definitely cheating, but you know. <laughs> no, but I, I think the scalability of of the online stuff is insane. I don't I don't know yes. what the latest numbers are for Steve Blank's class, but I think it's a couple hundred thousand people, right, yeah. are openly enrolled and yeah. and learning from that. And it's true. I'll sit up there and I'll you know we've got a couple hundred people here. It's that's great, but it's not a very big number in the scope of things. Right. Online, we're going to have probably two hundred fifty to five hundred thousand people watching this. So just the scalability of you know people being able to watch asynchronously is is that's where it's going. Yeah. All right, we'll take the next student question. Yeah. <clears throat> Steve, uh, thank you. So Andy Grove, former CEO of former CEO of Intel, says that bad companies are destroyed by crisis, good companies survive them, and great companies are improved by them. And so obviously Procore has improved significantly since its severe crisis. Um, and I just want to ask you, what were some of the more structural um, improvements that you guys made over those few years? Um. I think because we couldn't raise money, uh, we had to figure out how to make do with, um, with less. That's probably the most important one. Um, and, you know, paying attention to the bottom line and constantly making value decisions. I, I mean, when I look at Procore now, I, you know, it's this great building, it's this great corporate campus, and I look at that, and I, it's kind of the physical embodiment of about 15 million decisions. And you're just constantly trying to, it's kind of when you're sailing and you're trying to keep on a compass bearing, and you're trying not to get off course, and you're constantly adjusting, right? You're turning the wheel or you're pulling in the sails or something just a little bit, and you can't overdo it. And, you know, if you, if you just give up and walk away from the, from the tiller, then the, you're going to go wildly off course. And so I think that um, for us, staying on course in a sustained manner was really built itself into our culture and we're as you know as an intern there um we're wildly optimistic that we eventually will get to where we want to go um and so i think for us like paying attention to the bottom line paying attention to the value of everything we do are we getting return on it as well as um this this corporate value of optimism knowing that eventually we're going to get there um and 
trying to stay cheerful about it. I think those are the two most important things we learned about. Um, you know, it was kind of our own corporate version of um, of succeeding in the face of adversity. And there's a lot of um, uh, talk in the popular press now about grit and about being able to overcome adversity um, is something that's really valuable for personal development. I think it's it's um, important for our cultural development as well. All right, we'll take the next student question. Hi, thank you for speaking with us today. I was wondering, what do you believe is the most important characteristic to look for in a potential business partner to ensure a successful venture as well as a successful relationship with them? Like a partner, like a co-founder? Yeah. Um, Tui's going to see this. Yeah, Tui is going to see this. Uh, (laughs) No, I'm teasing him because he's taking his first vacation in, uh, well, uh, I'll say right away, he's extremely hardworking. Um, My partner's taking his first vacation in about two years, and he had our director of IT scramble his password, his email password, (laughs) um, after he left the building. And he said it was... um, I don't know if any of you have seen this old Mel Brooks movie called Young Frankenstein when he gets locked in the room with a monster and he says, don't let me out no matter what I say. Um, Two, he says, don't give me my email password no matter what I tell you. Um, So he's, he's, uh, he's definitely got his own style, but he's extremely hardworking. Um, But I think more importantly than that is character. Like if you're going to be a co-founder with somebody, if you're going to be a partner, um, look for this thing that is, is called character and we don't concentrate enough on. We look at pedigree. We look at where'd you go to school and what kind of car do you drive? And um, none of that matters. What matters is the character. Um, is this person going to be able to persevere? Are they going to be there for you? Um, are they going to flake? Or are they not going to flake? And unfortunately, it's really hard to test for. Um, and it's something that has to be experienced. Um, but it's uh, when you pick the right person, um, it's, it's an in- incredible what you c- can accomplish. I would never, um, my last company was with uh, two co-founders. The company before that, Profit, was with two other co-founders. I would never, ever want to do this by myself. Um, the self-doubt, the demons, um, the, the naysayers, the Taylor Swift haters. Um, it, it's, it, they'll all get to you, and you could never persevere. Um, so, you know, find a partner, but find one with character. Right. Thank you, Steve. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.